Let me introduce our guest today, Gillian Nenchinsky. She's a serial entrepreneur. She is the publisher of GTM magazine, and she's the co-founder of um, something quite special, uh, Hype Cycle. I don't know if you've seen the GTM games. What they do is effectively, they're, they're like the old benefactors in Florence uh, under the Medicis, and they get lots of talented people together and then make them grind against one another. And marketers do selling, salespeople do marketing, venerable old goats like me, which I think is probably sounds terribly arrogant, uh, but I didn't mean it that way. Uh, basically, oh, miserable old buggers come on and then coach. What's really fascinating is it's really all about trying to create an understanding of alignment, isn't it? 100%. Excited to be here, Marcus. I consider you to be a genius of B2B. So <laughs> let's go. I, I'm blushing now. So, Julia, tell us, um, g- give me a, c- a couple of minutes on your background because um, it's quite colorful. And I, I am really particularly interested in the latter stages of how you ended up coming up with some of these phenomenal ideas, which I'm uh, delighted you're here to share. Happy to. I've spent a decade working in marketing, always SaaS, always early stage companies. Founded a startup within a startup, then a CMO, get a word every had you can think of in marketing from copywriting to product marketing, event marketing, you name it. Just invited, you know, the best salesperson in the industry, one of the best of the best, Justin Michael, to be the face of that startup, mini startup. And there was a media element to it. And because of the thinking and, you know, some system and methodology, micro methodology that I developed or bringing the product to market, and it's not running ads. We generated insane amount of leads for just, you know, a couple of weeks and then it scaled and then it was successful. And so I left it all to the company and uh, co-founded a series of other projects with Justin, one of which you mentioned in the beginning, Hype Cycle. Let's deal with the question of hype because it strikes me that Justin's very good at it and so are you. Uh, and I'm really curious who your influences are. I don't see hype in a, you know, mass market kind of sense and meaning of that word. But if we're talking about hype as something that is noticeable to a certain group of people that you are trying to attract to your project, then yes, definitely we're trying to do that. My biggest influencer is Seth Godin. From our industry, it's going to be Sean Shepard. And yeah, I'm pretty much influenced by sales in general. I was always working in sales tech. So Spen started to be one of the greatest books ever written on go-to-market in general. And insanely jealous to <laughs> of salespeople that you know they have to work like that versus as marketers not having that kind of uh, research. Interesting. Because marketing generally appears to be teeming with research and data. And we always hear about the sort of um, plethora of insight that's coming out of marketing and marketing tech. But it strikes me that that seems to either be overwhelming or irrelevant in the main. So what, what would you suggest people in marketing really need to do to reassess the function of marketing and uh, leadership to assess, uh, to put marketing in the right place in the business? 
start from the beginning, Marcus, and, you know, literally go to Wikipedia and look at the history of marketing, at the history of go-to-market, at the history of product and brand. And if you look there, you'll see that what we tend to label as marketing now went far away from what it was initially intended to be. I read this memo from 1931 or something from the founder of Procter and Gamble. And he was like the, I don't know, godfather, you can say, of product management in general. And not all of us know that product management start from, started from brand management. And he wrote this memo was a, you know, sort of job requirement for a brand man and a brand man department. And there were four basic functions in it. Like first, talk to customers, you know, so that you can uncover their pains and problems. Secondly, develop a product that solves that problem and speaks to that problem and create a strategy that, you know, impacts sales and and bottom line, the revenue as a result of all of these conversations and track the right metrics and align on KPIs. So from that point, we went to pretty much, you know, simplified understanding of marketing if not nullified, where we just do communication and run ads. Do you agree? I can't quite get it. So why I often sound angry and frustrated is because there is no business justification except for the business model of the investors means that it's just easier for them. It's more convenient for them to have many, many companies fail because they only need a two, three, four to make it out of a portfolio of 50 to 100. As long as they wash their face big enough, then they can move on, they can get the carry, they can get them raise the next fund. And it, it feels lazy and self-serving. Now, how, how, do I, how do we get that message across to founders so that they can, first of all, see the dangers, because it is largely a death warrant that you're signing. And I mean, that's suicidal. But more importantly, how can they thrive through it and grow without having to be uh, fall into the scale, um, scaling the idiocy trap? Well, the first step is to understand that you're not Steve Jobs, as insulting as it might sound. <laughs> but yeah, 99% of us are not him. Mm. And we tend to think that we are, and we tend to think that our product is the best product. And we tend to think that we solve the real problem, the imaginary, and the problem is, you know, something that we imagine in a market that we sort of, you know, predicted. And it all comes to the, to the root of the problem again, that we don't talk to our customers actually, and we don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can blame the investors the KPIs and the chick- it becomes a chicken and egg problem. But essentially, it's a founder's problem, in my opinion, because these founders create, you know, speaking the Seth Godin language, more mass products for more mass audiences with solving mass problems that do not exist. So, you know, how do you uncover the real pain? How do you 
create something that actually solves a real problem to the person sitting in front of you? How do you scale that group? How do you scale that solution? That's that's the real questions. Okay. And given that the majority of founders have a an overemphasis towards either technology or sales or whatever, what advice would you give them in terms of building their team around them and the ecosystem that uh, they operate within? First advice is don't be a boss in a classic meaning of that word. And don't create, you know, a relationship of a slave and a king, or, you know, we can go into modern interpretations and, you know, but basically work, try to hire the best people out there, try to create alignment by just making these people argue, making these people have productive conversations, having that mini cross-training within your company itself. And I say cross-training, thank you for giving us credit in the beginning, Marcus, with Hype Cycle. That crazy idea, I remember bringing it to Justin and just, hey, you know, you want to do like this mini competition where sellers and marketers would cross-train their skills and then we see would challenge them on go-to-market so that they can, you know, expand their thinking beyond marketing and sales and just start to think like a founder of a company and understand how to sell, you know, their solution and create better solution for that target audience that they're doing it for. And initially, like, there's always this, you know, disapproval or denial. Oh, let's just do cold calls. Come on. You know, it's, it's not going to fly. But two years in, convinced Justin, convinced a lot of other people in the industry. Now it just seems like a common sense idea. But the best, you know, implementation of it really happens not on our games and not, you know, on the event series that we're doing, but actually within organizations. And what we're hearing, they are doing a micro go-to-market game where a CMO would coach sellers and a VP of sales would coach their marketing team. And yeah, bringing you know, at home back to, to the question That's that you asked, Marcus. News. If you set a certain, you know, kind of a type of a meeting where a VP of sales would talk to your marketing team without the CMO being involved and oversee some of their activities. And when the CMO would coach sellers and oversee some of their outreach and, you know, positioning and pitching the product and other materials and help them actually to think like a marketer. And if there is a product person here and there, you know, your product, given the same kind of a expertise exchange, that that's how I see a thriving organization. It's really fascinating to watch. For those of you who haven't experienced it, um, it's a bit like gladiators for sales and marketing. And essentially, you've got five people at the beginning of a week. They have different judges throughout the week, and one person gets eliminated every day. Now, it's a fabulously simple model for you to replicate within your own organization. When I was on last, it was a, a very difficult assignment, actually. 
You've got eight minutes to come up with this 18 to 24 month strategy to penetrate an account that has just signed with a competitor and you've got to develop a displacement strategy. And it was fascinating how these marketers came up with these strategies really very quickly and they were very, very good. Now, when they work together and you put those different strategies and you combine them, that starts to get really very interesting because now you've got the power of diverse uh, minds and diverse thinking uh, on the same problem. So I'm really curious where you see that evolving to next, because it strikes me that there's an opportunity here to create the university engagement because uh, you know, when, when people do MBAs, they get received texts, and that, that was a word that was used, And they're theoretical. This stuff is messy, roll up your sleeves, you know, get your nose bloodied, practical stuff, which I think very few academic courses really give you exposure to. And marketers are definitely not fit for purpose by the time they leave university, uh, any more than salespeople are after they've been through a three-day product training course. I, unfortunately, Marcus, I can't speak how I see it evolving because I've built a product as an evolution to that. And we are currently fundraising, but I definitely can speak to, you know, how teams can use that knowledge better internally. And okay, we well, can come back when you, when you come, back. <laughs> um, but uh, to talk to us about how teams can use it. Well, the first step is really, we talk about sales and marketing alignment pretty much forever. And SaaS exists. And the main problem with that is that That kind of talk is really theoretical. Obviously, there are best practices, align KPIs, align, you know, compensation, bring RevOps as a function, bring a customer officer. We all know that, but it's still really theoretical. And people tend to need that practical experience to really have that alignment going. So... I genuinely believe that it's not, you know, nice to have experience for a seller to really walk a mile in the marketing person's shoes and vice versa. Since, you know, we see this consolidation with technology and Mark is happy to hear your opinion on it, but I don't see sales tech being purely sales tech, MarTech being purely MarTech or, you know. I I think that siloing has been extremely detrimental because no one really forms a relationship. It, you know, it, even the AEs hardly have a relationship because after a year, they throw them over the fence and um, they've got no long-term interest. I think we should be looking at um, revamping the comp schemes. I think there should be outcome-based reward. When the customer reports they accomplished the outcome that they intended when they paid you, then sales and marketing and product and legal and finance and all the people who contributed to their success should be recognized and rewarded. I think we should probably get away from KPIs, which are very much backward looking, and move more towards possibly OKRs because they tend to be more leading indicators. Objectives are forward looking, key results are forward looking. But what we did last month is backward looking. And uh, unfortunately, if all you're doing is looking in the rearview mirror, you're going to crash at some point. And we see this um, with the quarterly panic and you know 35-day months and 
uh, you know, weird and wacky fireside deal, uh, fire deals going at the end of the quarter to try and make a valuation target, not even the revenue target. It's really about the valuation target, which is out of date by six o'clock that day. So it creates untold stress and a massive tariff on the individual sellers, and it damages relationships. So all of these things in combination, I think we need to review, and we should start with, well, why do we exist? Well, we exist to serve the customer. And if we build everything out from there, it's a lot simpler. The product, it needs to serve a need that the customer has, not something that we fantasize about. If it doesn't deliver the outcomes that the customer is intended, they'll churn. And they'll tell other people that it was a bad experience. So none of this seems to make any sense doing it the other way. 100% and how do you do it and who has to do it? What is, you know, the main question? And I see it marketing. And if you've got all of your, you know, ads, demand gen, and, you know, just generally silly expenses that we have in marketing department and just invest it all into marketers talking to customers and doing customer research and helping influence product decisions better so that there is BMF, so that there is adoption and retention so that sellers can do their job better, that would solve a problem. But then again, the easiest route is obviously to run ads and obviously to be in that mass, you know, market doing tasks on rats. And, you know, I'm not a rat, Marcus. I don't want to, you know, to, to have a product that is specifically targeted with a red button, you know, in the right corner so that I click it faster than, you know, on on the competitor. I want a product that keeps me there. I can spend a 10 bucks. I can spend a hundred bucks and thousand, but what is the guarantee that I won't churn tomorrow or in a week from now? Well, let's start with defining marketing then, because I know you've got a a, a slightly different perspective that um, many marketers will probably choke on. Let's hear your definition. I'm not an innovator here, Marcus. I'm just, you know, going back to the roots of marketing. And again, it's, it's, it's brand. I'm a huge proponent of brand marketing as opposed to direct marketing. And I don't believe in direct marketing. There are other projects, other products that, you know, are on that rent and race of just competing with each other, creating more stuff that, you know, people will eventually churn up. And there are companies that don't achieve, you know, mass saturation and hype that you mentioned in the beginning, like from day one, but they get there and they stay there like Salesforce, like Gong. I agree with Udi that I've listened to one of his, really like to listen to his interviews and recently mentioned that there are two categories essentially of products, cheaper and better. And so you can choose, you know, as a founder, as a team, as a company, what bucket you belong to. If you choose the cheaper, go on the rent of direct marketing and just, you know, spend more money on ads. And yes, you'll get the conversion like we had in the beginning 
we talked about it in the beginning of this call, you know, and eventually by blowing millions, thousands, you can get to two best examples that are pretty much scalable and that are wise positive. But you can omit investing all this money and invest it on a really good team that talks to the customer, that helps the product evolve together with the market that is being like the, the voice of the customer and a quantifiable voice of the customer. I cannot agree more. The whole idea that you can be a marketer and not speak to your customers is laughable. You can make lots of guesses, but assumption makes an ass out of you and me. And it's just insane. And it's so much cheaper to speak to customers than to try and iterate on the basis of guesswork and failing. Why not get there faster by a more direct route? Your customers are your best teachers. Your customers will tell you what they need and why they want it and what they're willing to do and pay for it if only you ask the right questions and have the patience not to try and rush them to force them into your ludicrous sales motion. Because the misalignment between where the buyer is on their buying journey, which may have started months or years before you even came on the scene, and they may well be far uh, progressed than when you enter the point where you have contact with them. And that is down typically the fact that salespeople and marketing people are trying to work the mass market playing a numbers game. Virtually everyone I've ever coached who has followed this advice is work on fewer accounts and go deeper and wider and play a medium to long game. And then they never have a short-term pipeline problem because all that medium and long-term stuff starts drip feeding in and you get there at the same time at the end of the first year, but by the end of the second and third year, you're so far ahead. And all you've had to do then is maintain the top of the funnel and really work the middle, which gets almost no attention from sales or marketing. So talk to me about where brand plays a part in the middle of the funnel. Happy to and happy to get a use case. So approximately five years ago, company we were working at, they were pivoting from a sales engagement solution to a guided selling solution. And back at the time, if you remember, Marcus, the only people that were talking about guided selling or revenue intelligence, as we call it now, were only analysts. Says Mars, they get it. They, They were writing amazing work. But, you know, if you, as a marketer, and I did your research, and you scale that research and you start to talk to potential buyers, VPs of sales, organizations, you see that they only started to spend their money back then on sales engagement after us seeing and pioneering sales engagement board, again, like five years and outreach and sales law, heavily investing, you know, money into that, if I can say evangelization point is, I created this connector, a startup within a startup, with an insight that VPs of sales were really interested in top of the funnel back then. It was a thing, and they 
started to really blow money on sales engagement. They're very interested in methodologies, you know, call calling. They were interested, how do you do call calling right? Why call calling works for one company and not the other? And I brought the best call caller in the industry, Justin Michael, to help me facilitate that go-to-market motion with his face being, you know, as, as the best representation of that product. And what happened eventually, you have that pipeline market. And all right, so how do you bridge the gap between the solution that is adoptable now and people are ready to spend money on now with the actually company, you know, goal, which is revenue intelligence and partly sales engagement motion. So I had a tremendous, you know, Hard, amount of hard communication with the team internally because they were almost ready and, and just, you know, having fights just to take that lead list and start call calling it and, you know, sending crappy emails right after, you know, the engagement with a project that the buyers, the customer loved. Right. So that's the main problem. How do you bridge that interaction as a marketer where you provide a value of your product and education about a thing, a category, uh, you know, you, you help the customer uncover their pain and actually solve it with something that is very tangible and, you know, monetizable for your company today. And so... The majority, obviously, would just call, call and spoil that interaction. And then what happens, you know, a massive unsubscribe. um, And you as a customer, like if you even started to see value of a brand, you immediately turn from it. We see that a lot. I use a model that Simon Bone shared with me. And if you imagine quadrants, And in the bottom, outside the bottom right-hand quadrant is the total addressable market. And marketing is trying to spend marketing dollars to drag them onto the marketing platform uh, so that they can scream in their already deafened ears, we're here, look at me. And a tiny fraction of those, a minuscule percentage of those get shunted onto the selling platform where probably one of the least experienced people in the company is then encouraged to demo the product to somebody who may or may not be a buyer. We generally have no idea because the MQL target doesn't mean quality leads. It's not a marketing quality lead. It's just a marketing qualified lead, which means they picked up the phone and they had a pulse typically. And you then spend more time and effort in the selling platform, uh, trying to get them into your pipeline. But a huge proportion of them bottle at bottom out at that point because the experience has been bad or the seller has failed to listen because they've been on a feature function route or on a, a quota and trying to pressure the buyer to buy before they're ready. Or they drive them into the arms of the competition, which is insane because um, according to an e-commerce uh, e- e-consultancy survey in 2019, for every $1 spent on conversion, $92 was spent on lead acquisition. That's a big disproportion there. And then once you've got them onto the selling platform, you're trying to get them onto the buying platform. 
This is where the buyer has already decided, I think you can help me. Don't drop the ball. Show me how. And the next stage is to try and get them onto your loyalty platform. But 99% of the effort, the money, the investment of time and energy is below the line in the bottom two quadrants in the marketing and the selling platform, but not in the buying platform and not in the loyalty platform where all the money is. Because new business, which seems to be the obsession of venture capital and leadership, is very unprofitable. It costs six to nine times as much what it used to. Now it's anything up to 21 times as much to sell to a new customer than to an existing. It makes 18% profit on average, according to the 2019 BankSAS survey, 170% for upsells, and expansion sales, 1150% profit. So in a world where money is expensive and you don't really want to get any debt that you don't really need, It strikes me that making a profit is all of a sudden very important. How do we get marketers and salespeople and leadership to align around making profit and creating sustainable businesses? Wow, what a question. I have a controversial opinion here, and I I believe that Aaron Ross's model, it came to the time where, and to the point where we need to evolve from that. And, you know, it's just unfair to put such a tremendous pressure on all of these young people and expect them to know all of the best methodologies and, you know, ways to talk to customer in a way that will bring that revenue through talking about markets. And partly Justin is really addressing that thing. And why I really, I'm a huge fan of his method and I personally use it for a lot of, you know, business goals and worked 100% of the time and speaking to that bridge that sellers and marketers need to achieve is if you're a sellers or, you know, if you're as the R motion, the manager motion belongs to marketing department, would build an interaction with a customer where you talk about them versus yourself and your solution and let that conversation flow for days and weeks and months without initiating the conversation about you, what you sell, what you're bringing to market, your pricing, your, you know, value, yourself, what you like, your baseball hobby, you name it, and let the customer transition to you, you know, on their pace. That's where the high quality conversation and relationship will start to build out and scale. So we have to develop some patience and we have to have a medium to long term perspective. And when we prospect, we prospect for a customer for life. Uh, Chris Dannon uh, taught me that one. That was really powerful. When you show up and you're thinking about having a conversation with someone in the belief that in 15 to 20 years time, you're still going to be having conversations And when you phone, they will pick up that call because they recognize your number or your name pops up and they say, I've got to take that call. Now, that's a very different setup and feel when you're on the receiving end of the call to someone who's phoning up to try and sell you a meeting in order to make a quota because it's all self-serving in the second call. And we've forgotten that we exist because of, not in spite of, the customer. 
And we are in a business that is about service. That doesn't mean servitude. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. It doesn't mean you have them ride roughshod over you. Uh, but it does mean our success depends on their success. But culturally, we have created this bro culture. It's ultra competitive. It's all about uh, conspicuous competition and conspicuous consumption. And the training is uh, lazy. It's all about technique. Yeah, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, well, when you teach people the technique, they'll use it, but they'll use it inappropriately. So a wonderful technique is the negative reverse. It's a fantastic technique used appropriately, but used inappropriately, you just sound like an ass. Julia, it sounds like you don't really want to progress in your career. Uh, it, I mean, that's just offensive. Um, and it's the same thing with Challenger. Challenger says that you should turn up with a thesis that causes the buyer to challenge their current perception. But it depends on you knowing your industry, knowing the competitive landscape, having done your research, looking at their accounts and their P&L and seeing where there are holes and then coming up with a thesis that actually has legs, not turning up and saying, you know, Julia, your website's shit. Because all you got to do is get the, is offend people. So we, we have to teach people basic human skills because that's been lost. Where questioning is all about how much information you can squeeze out of a customer. And uh, you get taught about customer control. No one wants to be controlled and no one wants to have their hat, you know, their pocket dipped by some pickpocket who's on their way to try and uh, make President's Club. To hell with all of that. We've got to grow up and realize that human beings are not the data. They're not the technology, but they do make the decision to buy. Thoughts? Yeah, I just, I mean, you correct me up, Marcus. On our, you know, behind the scenes operations every time, because I have my background in marketing and Justin, obviously sales. So in our sponsorship, partnerships, calls for the event series, what happens is when I start to sell, I'm basically using, you know, common sense technique where I'll just care about them. And I would ask, what do they care about? And how would, you know, our product solve it? When I think about how our product solve it, I'm really willing to walk away if it doesn't. And I don't want to initiate this partnership if it doesn't. So I would want to focus, you know, on the Mr. Mrs. right now versus just the right kind of persona. And Justin, after the call, he would just, you know, name, wow, brilliant. You did double negative and do, do, do. And he starts to just basically, you know, do a whole breakdown of what did I do and how, you know, I manipulated someone. But the beauty of it, Mark, is that I do nothing. I just listen to the person that is in front of me and just try to genuinely do my best work at that moment and try to understand how can I deliver that work to them and whether I can. But that isn't manipulation. All that is, is seeking to understand forensically. And it's real empathy. It's not this false empathy. Because again, one of the things that I've seen happen far too much, it was worse in the 90s when NLP first came out. But you know, lots of people went on rapport building courses. And their version of active listening is deeply offensive as well. Listen 
genuinely. Be curious and be interested in the other person. Try to understand what's their vivid vision of the future. Have they got one? Because mostly they don't. It's confused. And I think our job is to help them reach the right decision, whether it involves us or not. And one of the challenges to doing that is keeping our ego and our agenda out of the picture because it doesn't matter to the customer. And if you are really smart, what you'll do is you'll do your research on the companies that are likely over the next six to 36 months to have the likely requirements for your stuff and start the conversations now and go wide within the organization to try and get a feel for the different moving parts. That's where marketing can really come in. It's beautiful when that happens. And sales can then be referred from one part of the organization to another and build on previous learnings to inform the next conversation. So by the time you are trying to speak to the decision-making committee, not the evaluation committee, but the decision-making committee, you already have a quorum of support. You have mobilizers and champions. You know who your detractors and your opponents are who may be competing. You've identified how to neutralize their influence over the decision. You know what other decisions the board or the decision-making committee is trying to make at that time. And you know that you're on the top three. Otherwise, you ain't getting a look in. But that takes time and patience. It doesn't happen by putting a 23-year-old on their second job on a list of 2,000 calls and expecting them to try and sell stuff to people when they don't even know how a business works. They can't read a PL. They don't understand the, uh, the roles and responsibilities of the people they sell to. So how can they make it uh, personal enough? Uh, and how can they tell a story that the other person can relate to? Otherwise, it's just features and functions, isn't it? It's about growth mindset. And we talked about it a lot, Marcus. And, you know, unfortunately, it's not that dominant in, in our industry, in any industry, in business, everywhere else. You can come to the room as the person who knows it all. And you can come to the room as a person who wants to learn it all. You can view the world, you know, from the perspective that, you know, you're right or from the perspective that you seek to know the truth and the real reality. So, again, it's it's all about the culture within your organization and how CEO, the founders, how they build that collaboration, how they foster the growth mindset. Because, you know, if you happen to be a person who has the right mindset, has the right skill set, but you're just in a wrong environment, there's not much that you can do for change unless you are willing to manipulate and to go to that route in order to achieve what you are trying to achieve. Uh, in your I'm going to challenge you on that uh, simply because I, I spend a lot of my time uh, helping principled sellers who are in, operating in unprincipled environments and they're being asked to do things that they know aren't in the customer's best interest or in their own long-term best interest either. So helping them to navigate those environments with the minimum of damage. But it is very difficult. It's possible in some cases, not all, and often we have to navigate an exit. Again, burning as few bridges as possible and making sure that you're using the lessons 
uh, of that bad experience to inform your next decision. But I think the challenge is that too often we accept that it, this is the way it is within our culture of our organization. But if we take the time to think of this just like any other sale, and we think about who the different stakeholders are, then it becomes quite an interesting exercise because is it possible to influence even though you have no power? And this is where I think the skills of partnering really come into their own because people with middle or even no significant power can have massive influence, especially if they learn those partnering skills, which is why I'm, I am optimistic for the future. Um, because I'm seeing more and more of those people put their head above the parapet and let at least make themselves known to me. And there are thousands out there. That's enough to cause a change. So the work that you're doing at Hype Cycle, I think, aligns beautifully with the stuff that we're trying to do with Sales of Force for Good and our ecosystem. Because I firmly believe that the next generations of sellers and marketers deserve better. Uh, and so do customers. Because there is no need for the level of burnout or the exploitation and the uncertainty and the stress. It's coming to work should not be a health damaging activity. It shouldn't result in 60% of managers having a health related condition that is stress uh, induced today. It shouldn't result in burnout. It shouldn't result in the massive turnover which is exceptionally expensive. You know, I'm seeing companies where they have turnover of five months for the average AE on a 90,000 base. I mean, seriously? How expensive is that? And what message does that send to your customers? That's brand damage. And that's really not doing your brand any good. 100%, Marcus, but it also shouldn't be, you know, a Dilbert cartoon. Mm. Like we were seeing, you know... In live use case, amazing, beautiful use case at Twitter. And, you know, love or hate Elon Musk. But, you know, it's really sad when the Dilbert ratio is so high that, you know, it's it's <laughs> becomes really challenging to drive that change and to have a growth mindset. It really does. Um, okay, look, we've come to time, sadly. Um, I, I hope that one principal takeaway is that You've got to create great products that people want and they use, they adopt, they consume, they recommend. And it starts by speaking to the customer, having ongoing conversations with them and partnering with your customer, partnering internally and building everything from the customer out. Is that a fair summary? 100% fair. Fail forward. And, you know, don't be afraid to just like our slogan says, break out of your silo, because the truth is always outside of your bias, outside of your beliefs, outside of your mini reality. Again, a really important lesson. I uh, learned it from uh, watching, uh, I'm quoting Robert Reich, the Department Secretary of um, Work and Pensions, I think, uh, in the US, uh, Labor. Uh, and um, he said, you only learn from speaking to people you disagree with. And I have to be honest, yes. that really helps. I think you should speak to people with different perspectives uh, who do agree and you're all on the same mission, but speak to people who have a different perspective. Go to speak to customers who fired you, 
Go running for the bad news and go and speak to the customers who are upset with you. Go and look to uh, speak to customers who are working around your product because that'll tell you how to improve the usage, uh, the usability. Speak to customers who are using your product in unusual ways because that will help you to identify unmet demand. There's so much potential if only you talk to customers. Julia, where can where would you recommend people go to for really good resources to build on what they've learned today? Beautifully said, Marcus. Yeah, just go to HypeCycle, HypeCycle.com, and we wrote a book about it, Reinventing Virtual Events. It's a book not about events, but about a mindset for sellers and marketers. It has a lot of depth to it. So check it out. Let us know what you think. We're always happy to grow and learn and be useful. Excellent. And how does one spell hype cycle for those listening? <laughs> yeah, we, we don't have vowels in Tel Aviv or base, So kind of, you know, scale the trend of the country. It's H-Y-P-C-Y-C-L.com. Okay. And what would you recommend people read or listen to by way of influencers? Oh, don't get me started, Marcus. Um, top 10. Top, top 10. Everything Seth Godin, everything Robert Greene, Steve Blank, Crossing the Chasm, Spen, Jeffrey Moore, again, everything Jeffrey Moore, including his blogs. He continues to blog a lot. Yeah, that's that what comes to mind. Okay. How can people get hold of you? LinkedIn is the best way. Okay. Best mistake. What was the best mistake you've ever made and what did you learn? Ooh, best mistake. Oh, what a question. I guess the mistake of being afraid to ask the hard questions to the right people. And yeah, and learn to do it, definitely. That's good advice. And in all honesty, if you do it with, if you've earned the right, then you can ask those difficult questions very quickly. But you need to learn how to develop intimacy because intimacy is the key to creating trust. Credibility and reliability are table stakes. And anyone who shows up has to be able to do what they say they're going to do and then do it because otherwise you're just going to get fired or you're not going to get hired. But until people start to share confidences and let you in, they're not likely to trust you. And that will come from you having lower self-orientation than your average seller and really focusing on removing their perceived risk, because that's what stops people. If you look at the jolt effect, the research on that, half of closed loss, no decisions, which account for about 30% of all the sales in the pipeline, end up there because a seller pushes the wrong buttons and doesn't understand where the buyer is in their journey. If you had a bloody conversation, you'd know. Speak to your customers. Okay, final question then. You have a golden ticket and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot 23-year-old Julia. Um, (laughs) What's the one thing that if she'd listened then would have been an accelerator or a game changer for you? I guess the one thing is, Mark, is that there is no perfect time to um, become an entrepreneur. And we sort of, you know, talked about it in the beginning. And I had this belief 
as a lot of people, you know, majority of people do that you have to gain a certain experience. But eventually what happened, I found it as startup within a startup. So it's just, you don't choose it. It chooses you. And there is never a perfect time to fail forward. So there will be expensive learnings. There will be a lot of failures, a lot of, you know, growth, but it's whatever you make of it. So I would do it way, way back then. Well, I, I think that whole piece around giving yourself permission to fail and recognizing it as learning, not a character defect, is really key. And you know, that's part of a growth mindset uh, rather than a fixed mindset, because your fear of failure is largely imagined because it's never it's almost never fatal. I mean, if you can't live with the worst case scenario, don't take the risk. But if you can, get on with it because that's where you're going to learn. And if you're going to learn, Make sure you do it when it's cheap. Do it when you're young and stupid and resilient and you've got lots of energy. And if you screw up, you can still bounce back. Don't wait until you're in your 50s to take the plunge. Get on with it. <laughs> Good and very well. Julia, thank you so much. Um, is, there any, is there a question that I should have asked that I didn't? I guess it's a question for you, Marcus. Um, <laughs> when are you coming back to the show? Well, I've already booked for April, haven't I? Awesome. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I do have another question for you, and it's a good one. What's currently impossible for you that if it was possible would be a game changer? Wow, it's a hard one. It's For me, it's always about market adoption. So it's not impossible, but it's challenging. And, you know, if, if it wasn't challenging, it would be massively possible so, so what, what's the what's the area that you're struggling with in case anyone listening can bring some value to the conversation? I'm always interested in design thinking and you know, again, the problem of customer centricity and the problem of marketing and actually tactically applying day by day, minute by minute, everything that we're talking about. It's always a challenge. It's not an impossible challenge, but it's you know, we're we're living in very challenging four people to introduce you to um so if anyone else is listening and you can help julia out please do uh, and do get in touch thank you so much marcus it's my pleasure julia thank you so th this is marcus kauke signing off once again from the inquisitor podcast if you found this useful and insightful then please get in touch comment like share subscribe uh, leave a an honest review on whatever uh, channel you use for listening to your podcast and get the Reinventing uh, Virtual Events, is it? Yep. By uh, Julian Nimchinski and Justin Michael. And definitely go along to the uh, Hype Cycle games. They're really good. Uh, you'll learn a lot. Maybe uh, volunteer to be one of the participants because you'll learn shed loads and you get free coaching for a whole week. So it's well worth it. And if you do well, then you get dragged into other places and lots of very prominent sponsors will uh, be noticing your performance. So it's a good recruitment tool too. Now, if you're looking for a way to get out of those unprincipled environments or to manage without losing face, losing income or losing your job, uh, then get in touch. I help people just like you. And generally, we can find a much better way forward, whether it's with your company or somewhere else. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.